Elon Musk is an incredible entrepreneur. I don't think we've seen anybody of his caliber since Steve Jobs in terms of generating amazing ideas and the boldness with which he's willing to pursue those ideas. But an entrepreneur is not necessarily a CEO. I'm Scott McGrew, a technology reporter for NBC stationed right smack in the middle of the future, Silicon Valley. Come with me to the source of all the money funding that future, the special place everyone in Silicon Valley knows simply as Sand Hill Road. I've noticed something in the 20 years I've been interviewing entrepreneurs and venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. The more important a person is, the fewer the people in their entourage. Rookies show up to my studio with a team of people. A CEO of a red-hot startup might show up with just a publicist. Max Levchin, the guy who made a billion creating PayPal, arrived alone in his beat-up old Prius. Randy Kamazar, partner at Kleiner Perkins, the funds behind Google and Twitter and Uber, pulled up on a motorcycle. Let's start with this idea of give me directions to Sand Hill Road. If I am a young entrepreneur, I know Kleiner Perkins is the place to be, the place to go say, please fund me. And I know you're the guy who can give me the money. But, and I mean this in the most literal way, I've got this fabulous idea. How do I get your attention? How do I get your money? Well, let me put myself in the shoes of that entrepreneur. I think the first thing I would do is try to figure out who do I know that Commissar knows? Who can I use to vouch for me in that process and make that introduction to get a warm introduction? Because that's the best way to do it. The second best way to do it is to show up at one of these demo days and do a presentation that gets a lot of attention and will then get you a warm introduction to Commissar. Um, the third way to do it, and it is relatively random, is to send something over the transom and see whether I've got the time to read it, whether I read it, and whether or not I got excited you by it. You must get dozens or I hundreds do. of those. And occasionally, and I will say occasionally, I actually find one in the stack that I go, hmm, this is interesting. Usually it's not the business that I find interesting, it's the person. I think that's true throughout Silicon Valley, that it is the person and the drive and the team. And having covered Silicon Valley for, gosh, more than 20 years now, you see the different people reco recombining yeah. into different teams. Yeah. It's, it's all the different people in different uh, arrangements. And I think you're seeing that on your end as well. Well, it's so true. I think if you look at the history of Silicon Valley, it's never been about a big breakthrough as much as it's been about the person making the breakthrough. Because the ideas are cheap. Execution is hard. But finding somebody who can crystallize a great idea and um, proselytize it, evangelize it, bring together the resources and support necessary to make it work, that's rare. And so I look for people who have that passion, the ability to learn on the job, um, have a sense of purpose about what they're doing, because they make the best entrepreneurs. Phil Libin of General Catalyst said one, to me once, startups are stupid in the sense that why have I got to build a company to build a product? And I thought about that, and I said, I thought, he's right. You know, you take something like a, a ring or... Or, or something, Nest would be another one. These are really cool devices in which the entrepreneurs behind them also had to build a company. 
And why can't we have some sort of system in which we build products and somehow the company takes care of it? Well, in a way, that's where the valley is today. There's so many products masquerading as companies and so many companies masquerading as businesses. You want to give me a couple examples? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think we could all use our imaginations. So the reality is that today, if you look at these seed stage and age stage businesses, they're product experiments. That's what they really are. And if you take a look at the M&A activity around those product experiments, these things never turn into companies of any consequence. They certainly don't talk turn into businesses. And I, it's my job as a venture capitalist to try to figure out if this product can be a company and if this company can be a business, because that's the way I get returns from my investors. I suppose companies get, get bought up. I mean, Nest would be a good example of that. I suppose companies are only companies for a temporary amount of time. So often the company that builds a single product then becomes part of Google, then becomes part of Microsoft or something else. Well, that's true in the general economy. The a public company today tends to have a lifespan of something like 17 years. 20 years ago, it was 45 years. 50 years ago, it was, a, it was like 80 years. So the lifespan of a company is getting shorter and shorter and shorter as innovation continues to put pressure on legacy businesses. Where do companies most often get into trouble? I suspect it seems to be management. Working in the news, that's where they get their worst press. But where is the most common place where they trip? Well, remember, these businesses are evolving. And so you're, you're incurring a different level of risk and a different type of risk at each level. First, you have the technology risk. And that can be proven in a lab with five smart people, right? Then you have sort of the product risk, which is you need about a dozen people to figure out if this, can, this technology can be turned into a product. And that raises a different level of risk inside the organization where it can fail and also a different level of opportunity. Then you've got the next level of risk, which is build a company. Now you've got to build a structure, a management team. You've got to have leadership. This is a huge risk because now you've taken an entrepreneur who probably has no concept of organization and management and, and, uh, and, and sort of imposed upon them the obligation to build a company around the product. This is where a lot of things break. But they break again later, which is now let's say I've got a, an entrepreneur who's been successful at building a company around the product. They've got to scale it. And, I mean, look at Tesla today and look at what we see with Elon Musk. We're seeing a great entrepreneur um, have to prove himself as a great CEO, which he clearly isn't yet. Elon Musk has too many ideas, I think, is part of the problem. We want him to build that car, and he comes out and says, hey, look, I've got trucks, or I've got flamethrowers, or I've got another car line. There's... I think somebody needs to tell him, for now, you just need to build that one car. Actually, I would take the opposite approach, which is I would say Elon Musk is too valuable for his ideas to run a company. Elon Musk is an incredible entrepreneur. I don't think we've seen anybody of his caliber since Steve Jobs in terms of generating amazing ideas and the boldness with which he's willing to pursue those ideas. But an entrepreneur is not necessarily a CEO. And an inventor is not necessarily an entrepreneur. These are three very different types of people. In my first book, The Monk and the Riddle, I talk about the uh, retriever, the bird dog, and the husky, right? And early on in a company, we need a retriever, somebody who's going to be able to evangelize an idea and pull together the resources to support the people and talent necessarily to get that idea to fruition. 
And then we need what I call the, the bird dog, the CEO who's able now to spot the opportunity to aim that organization towards in order to build a business. And then we need the husky, somebody who's gonna pull that sled to scale. They aren't necessarily the same person. And the fact that Bill Gates did it so well doesn't mean that every entrepreneur should think that's their goal. I would rather see Elon Musk come up with the next big idea than worry about getting a Tesla 3 down to $39,000. I suppose that comes with genius, though, doesn't it? I know what's best. This is my baby. I'll get this done. It must be very, very difficult for, for the founders of companies to hand over the reins to somebody else. So true. I see this all the time. When I'm coaching and mentoring my, C my, my founder CEOs, that at some point it's not worth their time and effort to try to scale themselves to build a business, that their um, value is so much greater in founding the next idea, the next technology, the next product. This is such a hard, hard decision for them to make. And most of them see the celebrity value of being a great CEO versus a great entrepreneur as the next step for them in their career. The media has made this the, um, the gold standard, you know, and I do think that uh, founder entrepreneurs find themselves uh, enticed by that and seduced by that. But we need to separate inventors from entrepreneurs from CEOs. They are different, and the fact that Bill Gates was able to do all of them doesn't mean that the average entrepreneur should. Do you think we get better companies in times of boom like we are now or in times of bust? Because I can think of a long list of companies that came to Silicon Valley and are successful now that came during or were founded during that period of just misery. I think companies that are born in desperate times, the companies that emerge from those tend to be really powerful companies. And if I look today at the, um, the laxitude of uh, the investors and uh, others in the ecosystem, there's a lot of things not being filtered properly through the screen. And so we're gonna see a lot of founders and entrepreneurs and products and companies coming out of this heyday, this bubble um, euphoria we're having today that I think are very weak. Um, it is really in the downturns when people have to prove themselves with little support, lots of cynicism, few resources, that's when we get powerful entrepreneurs and companies. We all have our anecdote about our job. What is yours that you can say, I was there when? Hmm. Huh. You know, when I think back of the great opportunities I've had, right, I mean, I was at Apple right after Steve left when the Macintosh came out, and it was amazing, right? It was just an amazing, magical experience. I can only think that it must be what it must have been like to be at Google in the early days or Facebook in the early days. Uh, when I was at LucasArts Entertainment working for George Lucas, and the Lucas franchise had actually been in the shitter, and we were now pulling it back out through the games division, through ILM, that was super exciting. That was just before he decided to do the prequels. Um, when I left there and went off to become a virtual CEO doing TiVo and web TV, wow. To me, to, me, to work with those people as we were transforming a media in the 1990s, 
Um, later going off and working with John Doerr and team as we tried to make green investing work and then morph the firm into, I think, what is now a really powerful um, player in the new technologies. All of those were, I, it's a privilege. I just feel privileged to have been there. You bring up TiVo. I remember it was actually Replay TV, one of their competitors, which I don't think is around anymore, who had lent me a device, uh, may have not been a complete device, and said, take it home, hook it up. And and they called and said, have you done that yet? No, I haven't quite gotten around to it. Have you done it yet? No, I haven't gotten quite around to it. I knew it was some sort of fancy VCR. The minute I paused live television was absolutely revolutionary. What is the thing in Silicon Valley, the thing in which you woke up a, a partner or a spouse and said, oh, my God, look at this? Well, if I, if I, I got to tell you, the thing that's exciting me most as I look at it from the, um, from the perspective of being at Kleiner Perkins is what's going on in healthcare, what's going on in immunology, what's going on in personalized health. This stuff is, is, is world-changing. And it has global implications. And when I sit and listen to these amazing scientists and physicians talk about what they see on the horizon that can be done with new technologies, my mind spins. So I think it's an area that is very, very exciting that, um, I, that personally I find purposeful and, um, and worth failing at to make it work. Is Silicon Valley still the f best place to start a business? It's the best place to start a business. I'm not sure it's the best place to build and scale a business anymore. It's very expensive. The infrastructure is stressed to, a, to the extreme degree. The socioeconomic demographic stresses and conflicts in, your, in, the, in the area are taking its toll. The idea that over 50% of the population in the greater Bay Area intends to leave is a remarkable statement. That's certainly, I've never seen anything like that before in my time here in Silicon Valley. So I do think it's still the best place to start a business because of the incredible talent that's here and because we have a culture that tolerates failure in a way that no other culture does. But it is getting very expensive, difficult, uh, and I think maybe unattractive to build scaled organizations here. Randy Kamazar is the author of Straight Talk for Startups. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. If you're in the San Francisco area, that's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com. Next week on the podcast, the inventor of the iPhone spell check. And yeah, we're going to ask him about the word ducking. I'm Scott McGrew. I'll see you next week on Sand Hill Road.